encourage you to take out, again, your Bibles and have them open before you to 1 Timothy chapter 4, the passage that John read for us just a few moments ago. As I direct the attention of our hearts to the text, let me remind you that the question really looming large over this passage, which is now open before us, is simply this. What does a faithful and Christ-exalting pastoral ministry look like in the local church? That is, what is the man of God to be like? And what is the man of God to act like in order to be considered a good servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? What are the do's and the don'ts of effective gospel ministry? And what are the pastoral priorities and the spiritual proclivities of a faithful shepherd among God's needy flock? You might be saying, well, from that introductory paragraph, Pastor Dan, this is a sermon for you. (laughs) And indeed it is. But it's also for you. For my life as a minister of the gospel is to be nothing less or nothing more than a model for your life as a Christian and a follower of Jesus. You know, regrettably and quite embarrassingly from my standpoint, the state of pastoral ministry, even among the broader conservative evangelical church of which we are a part, has fallen into sad disrepair today. Caricatures of clergy who work only Sundays, you better not say that to me after church today, or who just sit around reading their Bibles all day long, or of those red-faced and rotund judgmental blowhards or social media shepherds abound in contemporary culture. If anybody in here, and there are a handful of you, are fellow ministers of the gospel, in many ways we have not done ourselves any favors. It used to be that the church leaders, and particularly pastors, were some of the most trusted individuals in a local community. Now, sadly, they are some of the least trusted. Sure, some of this tragic trend is due to the culture's widespread rejection of the Bible, the gospel, and the truth of Jesus. But some of it as well is due to the poor examples, the moral failings, and candidly, the inept ministries of so-called clergy in today's church. The state of the ministry today is sadly poor. Where are the Baxters and the Bunyans? Where are the Calvins and the Charles Spurgeons of the 21st century? Friends, 1 Timothy chapter 4 provides us with a better picture. It provides us with a clearer portrait of both the gospel man and the gospel ministry. You see, Timothy, you might recall, had been strategically assigned to the recently released, by the recently released Apostle of Grace, the Apostle Paul, to that cosmopolitan city there in ancient Ephesus for a, an exceedingly important reason, to show his fellow Christians how to act in God's house. Paul writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, verse 14, Timothy, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. 
Different doctrine, false teaching, evidently was sweeping across the city of Ephesus. When Timothy was installed as the new senior pastor of what was very likely, relatively, a large church that Paul himself had planted previously on his second great missionary journey we read of in Acts chapter 19. This congregation at this time was less than a decade old. Many of the key leaders in this prominent city church were no doubt much older than Timothy. And the cancer of speculative myths and strange teaching threatened the very existence and unity of the Ephesian church. Timothy's job was no small task. And so Paul, motivated by a mind towards gospel expansion to the West, even to Spain, and maybe realizing that his time on earth was now coming to a close, he sent his number two, a bright-eyed and very likely sensitive soul with a soft voice and a tender heart and much to learn about running a church to set things in order back in Ephesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 to 16, the greatly experienced Paul the Apostle of Grace provides a rookie lead minister named Timothy, and through this divinely inspired and preserved letter that we now hold in our hands, he provides us as well with a multi-step workout plan for fit gospel ministry. You guys remember P90X? You remember P90X? I wouldn't know P90X if it walked up and said, howdy doody to me. Well, I'm going to introduce you today to P7X, P7X, P7 cross. Paul reminds us that godliness is never just automatic. It requires effort. It demands training. It requires hard work, just like any other athletic competition requires physical discipline and good conditioning. Paul gives Timothy a spiritual workout plan, P7X. Paul makes it plain that the godly, faithful life of a pastor or lack thereof will set the tone for the entire church where they serve. That a congregation will never outpace the spiritual growth and progress of godliness by its key leaders. So that if there is immaturity in this house... I need to look in the mirror. This is a message for me, but it's a message for you as well. That's why, friends, there are 12 imperatives, 12 commands in 10 verses in this text, all flowing out of the Apostle Paul's inspired pen. Timothy is given here the do's and the don'ts of a healthy gospel ministry. Not only for the sake of his own pastoral reputation and sanity, frankly, but also, according to verse 16, for the sake of the church's purity and spiritual progress in the gospel. Paul does not leave it vague. He does not stumble with his pen. He says, Timothy, take notes. This is what gospel ministry looks like. This seven-step workout plan for gospel endurance in the local church prioritizes two things. Firstly, it prioritizes the development of Timothy's own personal character. It's interesting that Paul does not start with exegesis. Paul does not start with elocution. 
He starts with a heart shaped after Christ. Personal, spiritual character and development, as well as Timothy's needful devotion to the public means of grace in the church. Because it does take skill to be a faithful shepherd. You can have all the heart in the world, but if you can't preach your way out of a paper bag, you're in trouble. It takes skill as well as heart. Paul had commanded Timothy to train himself. The word train there is the Greek word gymnazo, where we get our word gymnasium today. Not merely for physical endurance, but for spiritual endurance in the service of Christ. Timothy was to work out his ministry. Timothy needed time in the gym of God's word. Even more than he needed physical training and physical exercise. And that's a whole other topic we could talk about. He needed to hit the weights of the word. And he needed to hit his knees in prayer and faithful sacrificial service. Why? Why? Well, the answer is very plain. It's because pastors and elders, and when you hear me say pastor, I am saying the same thing as elder because they are the same office. There is no distinction. Elders are pastors and pastors are elders. Pastors are especially called to be guardians of the gospel, to be guardians of the truth. Now, we don't bear that responsibility alone. Every single Christian is to guard the sacred trust of the gospel. But pastors and elders especially are responsible before God to guard the sacred truths of the gospel. This task takes effort, it takes exertion, and it takes serious and sober preparation. On this theme, Denny Burke in his commentary says, Godliness teaches a person that God will do for a corpse what physical training could never do. Raise that corpse to life. Making it new, immortal, and glorious. See a lot of big-muscled pastors on social media these days. Nothing wrong with big muscles. But what about a heart shaped by grace? What about that? Church leaders and truly even rank-and-file followers of Christ must cross-train if they hope to go the distance in the fight of Christian discipleship. We face a formidable foe. And so we need to take our training seriously. Working out in the truth helps the Lord's servants to not tap out in times of difficulty. So notably, listen, Paul employed athletic imagery quite often in his letters. I wonder if Paul is sort of like Pastor Dan. (laughs) I want to be like Paul so badly. But, you know, the Lord did not make me six foot four and 235 pounds. Paul, I think Paul loved athletics. And one reason I think that is because he, he cites athletic imagery so often in his epistles. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, just very quickly for an example. He says, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. 
but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul draws upon very common ancient Greco-Roman imagery of boxing and racing in his letters. Paul says that if, you, if your output exceeds your input, then your upkeep will be your downfall. Training in godliness helps gospel people, both pastors and non-pastors, go the distance in gospel service. Paul wanted to finish well, and he did finish well. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 and verse 7 and 8, we read this, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought, fought the good fight I have finished the race. Paul says, I have kept the faith, and henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Brothers and sisters, it's good to start fast, but it's great to finish faithfully. Finish. Finish the race. Don't give up. So listen, what is this P7X plan? What is this seven-step cross-training regimen that Paul evidently wanted Timothy to take up in order to rise up to his heavy responsibilities there as a shepherd in Ephesus? Well, the first cross-training activity is simply this. Don't get distracted. Timothy, do not get distracted by all that silly nonsense talk. Let me give you a C. I'm going to give you seven C's this morning. This is the C of concentration. Timothy, concentrate on your task. The first command is found in verse 7, the first half of verse 7 specifically, where Paul writes, Timothy, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Irreverent, silly myths. I like how the Net Bible, the NET Bible, puts this. It says, reject those myths that are fit for only the godless and the gullible. That's well put. The word myth, mind you, is employed five times in the New Testament, only five times. Four of them come from the pastorals, one of them from Second Peter, and they're always employed negatively. If you're flirting with a myth, you're flirting with fire. Stay away from the myths. You see, Paul's point is very simple. People of the truth don't let their minds get hijacked by fantastic, false ideologies and fairy tales. There's a lot of myth in our culture today. There's a lot of stuff that seems really interesting. But all it's designed by Satan to do is to distract you from the main thing. Jesus Christ and his love and death for you. Don't get distracted with silly Fairy tales, Timothy. Stay focused, my son. Concentrate on Christ and you will finish your task. This first cross-training activity, I think, logically flows out of what Paul had previously stated negatively in verses 1 through 6 of our chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 4, about Paul, uh, Timothy's pastoral priority to oppose false teaching. Remember, he talked about speculation and, and myths, all these things that Timothy was to oppose. Whatever these myths were, and I think they were rooted in abuses and misuses of the law of, of God, 
forbidding marriage, requiring abstinence from foods. Timothy was not only to get not sucked in by them or swallow them, he was to flat out oppose them. Don't buy what these hucksters and charlatans are selling. Pastors today need to be faithful to warn the flock of the very same peril. Friends, I said it last week. If you weren't here, go back and listen to the tape. Don't buy it. Don't buy it. In fact, don't even shop there. Cross-training activity number two. Not only concentration, but commitment. Do condition yourself for godliness. It's not enough to avoid. We must immerse. We must commit ourselves. The great Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane, who died, by the way, at the age of 30 years old, once said this, Chuck Swindoll cites this in his commentary, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. He said, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. In fact, the headstone on his grave there in Scotland reads as follows, died in the 30th year of his age, in the seventh year of his ministry, walking closely with God, an example for the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity, he ceased not night or day to labor and watch for souls. How's that for a headstone reading? God, please make me a man like Michelle. Listen, it's not the length of a man's ministry that matters. It's the depth of his devotion to Christ. There are no quick fixes or shortcuts or cheat codes to success in gospel service. There's no fast track to Christ's likeness. It takes faithful plotting day in and day out. Paul says that gospel people must meet him in the gym of spiritual discipline in order to acquire the spiritually fit figure of Christ's likeness needed for gospel service. Timothy, you got to work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. No pain, no gain. See, without commitment to training, there is no conformity to Christ's truth. We must, we must give ourselves to the task So the second half of verse 7 is where this comes from. Notice it says, rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now it's interesting to me that Paul gives us here the third of five trustworthy statements in the pastoral letters. They're found in 1 Timothy 1.15. In chapter 3, verse 1, in chapter 4, verse 9, 2 Timothy 2, verse 11, and Titus chapter 3, and verse 8. Trustworthy statements that Christ came to save sinners, that desiring the task of an elder is a noble one, that Jesus is the Savior of all who believe, that he is faithful forever, and that we are indeed justified by grace. But notice what it says in the text of 1 Timothy 4, verse 9 and 10 specifically. This saying is trustworthy, and commentators really are somewhat divided. Is this saying trustworthy what Paul had just said or what he's about to say? I take the view that it's what he's about to say. This saying is trustworthy and full, deserving of full acceptance. 
For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. I guarantee you that there are some of your minds who have just allowed yourself to run to a place of theological curiosity right there. And controversy over what Paul really means in verse 10 when he says that we set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people. Paul, what do you mean? I can already hear the critics of Calvin. What do you mean God has elected some and not all? What does verse 10 really mean? Well, let me tell you what it means. And let me warn you from twisting the scriptures into what it doesn't mean. Paul is simply saying this, guys, get in the gym of gospel truth and training each day to get spiritually fit, for this is not only of value to you in this present life, but also in the life to come. And also agonize and even wear yourselves out in the Lord's gym because the risen Christ is the only Christ. That's what he means. He's saying there's only one way to heaven. Acts 4 verse 12, there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. There's only one Savior. This is not a Calvinist-Arminian debate here. This is a gospel statement that there is one Savior and His name is Jesus. Don't indulge and don't feast on sugar-coated snacks of silly myths and artificial truth, but rather feed on the choice meat of the gospel of grace because it will not only save your soul, it will save your hearers as well. That's all Paul's saying to Timothy. God's servants must train themselves in godliness. And that involves not only how we work out, but what we take in. You won't get buff in gospel belief by just laying around on the sofas in the church. Just showing up is not enough. You got to work out in Bible study. You got to work out in worship. You got to exert yourself when you come to church. Just showing up is not enough. A lot of people have showed up and then split hell wide open. You got to give yourself to Jesus each and every day. Apply yourself and you will see benefits both now and forever. Cross training activity number three communicate the truth. Do preach and teach the gospel of grace. Concentrate, commit, and communicate, Timothy. I want to take Paul's third and fourth imperatives together just for the sake of time this morning. And there is a sense in which Paul's focus here in this particular transition shifts from Timothy's personal development to his public devotion beginning in verse 11. He's shifting, in a sense, from Timothy's life to his work. But we really shouldn't split these core commitments up since they really rise and fall together. Verse 11 says, Timothy, command and teach these things. Both command and teach are imperatives or commands in the original language there. Command and teach, as others have well pointed out, simply refers to the ordinary work of pastoral ministry. Prayer and preaching. Prayer and preaching. 
That's what, according to Acts 6 verse 4, I and your elders are called to do. We're not called to do all the ministry in the church. We are called to pray, preach, and equip you for your work in the ministry. Pray and preach. Timothy was put in Ephesus not to entertain, not to ex- but, but to exhort, not to tickle the ears, but to teach God's truth for the transformation of lives. What was he to preach or command and teach? But what he had just been heard, hearing in verses 1 through 10 of 1 Timothy chapter 4. Con, uh, contradicting false teachers and proclaiming Christ crucified. Good pastors must grow both in godliness and get to work about speaking of Jesus. Somebody said that a preacher's job is not to complicate simplicity, but to simplify complexity. Pastoral ministry is more than simply speaking the truth of Scripture, but it is certainly not less. It absolutely includes our words. We must communicate the gospel. Paul actually famously puts it in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. He says, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. In other words, God's man is to be a Bible man. And God's woman is to be a Bible woman. You know, there's a famous scene in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress where Christian enters the house of interpreter. Maybe you know that scene. It's a picture of the church, really. And he goes into a private room, and there he sees the picture of a very grave person hanging there on the wall. Bunyan then writes, This was the fashion of it. It had eyes lifted up to heaven, the best of books in his hand. The law of truth was written upon his lips, and the world was behind his back. It stood as if pleading with men, and a crown of gold did hang over his head. Christian then asked the interpreter, who I believe is the Holy Spirit, who who the man in the portrait was, and the answer that he got was, this was God's holy minister. A servant of Christ Jesus and a herald of the truth. What do you picture when you picture a man of God today? Somebody in skinny jeans and a Hawaiian shirt? It's not about how you dress. I just say that really just to make it light for a moment. But we have these images in our minds of of what real serious spirituality looks like. But I think Bunyan's description really gets at the heart of it. There is a time for everything under the sun. A time for happiness and a time for seriousness, a time for laughter, and a time for mourning. And we do ourselves no favor when we as ministers are are stuck in the mud all the time. We need to smile. We need to be happy. We have the most to be joyful about, but we ought to be men of great gravity and seriousness as well. And I think Bunyan gets it just right. Good servants communicate eternal truths to mortal souls, and they do it with seriousness. 
So therefore, Timothy, concentrate. Therefore, Timothy, commit yourself. And therefore, Timothy, communicate the gospel faithfully. Notice the fourth cross-training activity. Confront error. Confront your opponent. Silence disrespect by setting a godly example. There's an unwritten rule that some of you know in vocational ministry, and that is this. You never want to be the guy who follows the guy. Do you know what I mean? You never want to be the guy who follows the guy. And the Apostle Paul in the first century was quite clearly the guy. Timothy was following the guy. See, Timothy most likely was just shy of 40 years old when Paul wrote this command. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct in love and faith and in purity. He was almost 40 years old, friends. This is a good verse for youth ministry, but Paul is not talking to a teenager. Timothy was young-ish, but he wasn't a young un. No, there are actually two imperatives in verse 12 that we need to note. First, Paul says to Timothy, and, and I'm still grappling with what this really means. Timothy, let no one disrespect you for your inexperience. That's effectively what he's saying. Let no one despise your inexperience. But rather, set positively an example of godliness for others. One command is negative. One command is positive. I can tell you, sadly, and I won't tell you in detail, many stories now that I am 44 years of age and have been in full-time gospel ministry for nearly two decades. I can tell you many, many stories about being disrespected in the church. Back in my mid-20s and frankly until even recently, it was quite commonplace for me to feel intimidated, outwitted, and at times even flat out disrespected by people in the church. There's a certain type of church person who seems to get their jollies off of putting young ministers in their place. It ain't right. Don't be that guy. I don't say it for my sake. I say it for his, for Brad. I say it for other young aspiring, faithful men who want to love Jesus and have to get pushed around by people in the church. Don't be that guy. Jesus gives gifts to his church. I'm not saying there's not a time and a place to put us in our place because sometimes, especially young guys, step out of line. But you want to make sure you are measured and you are rightly motivated before you do that. And it might be somebody else in the church that should do that if you are eager to do it. Timothy was evidently quite susceptible to this experience. For Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, For this reason, Timothy, I remind you to fan into fame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. And Paul said that to Timothy 20 years after he had begun to walk with him. He still needed to encourage Timothy's timid heart. 
Even years earlier, Paul had likewise written to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 10 and following, when Timothy comes to you, see that you put him at ease among you, Timothy writes, or Paul writes to the Corinthians, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am, so let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers." Don't push him around. Timothy might have been a wallflower. He maybe was at times a cowardly Christian. Timid Timothy, we often call him. But I take a different view. This is probably not the case. I think he gets a bad reputation. Because Paul had recruited Timothy 20 years earlier when he had heard about his good reputation. Well spoken of by the brothers in Lystra and Iconium. Timothy, I believe, was godly. Timothy was certainly gifted, but his problem was unavoidable. He couldn't measure up to Paul. He couldn't get out of his shadow. And frankly, I know what what it feels like. I preach week after week after the likes of David Jeremiah and John MacArthur and Chuck Swindoll and Alistair Begg. And though none of you mean it, I often hear, Pastor, I heard a great sermon this morning. And in my flesh, what I feel is, man, today better be a good one. Today better be a good one. Pastoral comparisons are the leading killer of personal joy in the ministry. And that's really not on y'all. It's on me. I got to grow up. I got to grow up. But I'm just, again, for the guy who's going to follow me, I want to encourage you love him well. Love him well. If he's a good one, he's not perfect, but he's given you everything he's got. Love him well. So, what was Timothy to do? Paul says, shut up your critics by showing them a godly example. Silence your doubters by setting the pace. Setting the pace in speech, that is what you say. Setting the pace in conduct, that is how you live. Setting the pace in love, that is by how you show compassion. Set the pace in faith by what you hold in belief and your conviction of it. Set your faith in purity by how, by how your life is consecrated in holiness. The best way to silence your doubters and critics is it to shout them down but to show them Christ. The minister's lips and love and life ought to ooze with the life of Jesus. Because before you can do anything in public, you must draw near to him in private. So Timothy, confront your opponents boldly, but carefully. Cross-training activity number five, dedicate yourself to the ministry of the word. Cultivate the ground in God's house. This next training, cross-training activity has to do with the pastor's main tool, which is the Word of God very clearly. Verse 13 says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. In other words, Paul says to Timothy, simply occupy yourself with the Word. Timothy, read the Word to the people. 
Timothy, explain the word to the church. Timothy, exhort the people from the word. Timothy, teach the people to love the word. In reality, the text of verse 13 simply reads, Until I come, give heed to the reading aloud. That's what it says. Give heed to the reading aloud. The context very clearly indicates that Paul has in mind Timothy's dedication to the public ministry of the word of God. When the church assembles, the pastor's main job is to see that God's voice is heard through the public reading of the scriptures. It's not my time to shine. It's not my opportunity to let you know what I've been thinking about lately. It is God's moment to grow you in grace. That's all this is. They are to call God's people up to obedience in view of what has been read aloud before them. And they are to instruct the church in practical matters of godliness and holiness. For the Bible is the main ingredient the essential ingredient in the spiritual formation of both Christian and church alike. So therefore, cultivate the ground in God's house. Philip Jensen in his commentary explains that the closest example that we have of this is found in Acts chapter 13. You might remember when Paul and Barnabas had arrived there in Pisidian Antioch on one of their first mission trips. We are told in Acts 13 verse 14 that on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it now. And evidently Paul stood up and spoke to the assembly. And what he was doing was he, he was exhorting the people from what they had just heard. The point simply is this, that a minister with a closed Bible has nothing really of great value to say. As pastors, we are stewards. We are not chefs. We serve truth. We don't whip it up. We are butlers of what God has prepared to feed his flock. God feeds, he leads, he protects, and he directs his people through his voice, becoming the shepherd's voice when the word of God is heralded It is heard, it is obeyed. And so therefore, Timothy, give yourself to the ministry of the word. Sixth, remember your calling and gifting. Cross-training activity number six, consecrate yourself to your task. It's a bit peculiar, so frankly a little puzzling why Paul includes it. We read in verse 14 of our text, 1 Timothy 4, do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now, a careful reader of the scriptures will notice this is not the first or even the only time that Timothy's ordination is mentioned by Paul. Back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul had written, verse 18, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made previously about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. To me, this simply is a reminder that pastoral ministry Though personal is not private, it is a public charge. It is a public stewardship. Timothy's gifting for gospel ministry evidently included maybe even a unique word of prophecy about him and an act of public laying on of hands. He was set apart for the gospel of Christ. And so Paul wanted Timothy to remember that his office was an office not of honor, but of responsibility. 
His charge was not a privilege. It was a stewardship. And so, remember your ordination. Remember when the elders' hands were laid upon you. Am I called of God? I cannot tell you how many times I have stayed awake at night over that question. Am I called of God? There is probably no question that lingers or haunts ministers more so than that question, am I really called of God? Charles Spurgeon, taking up the call to ministry, says, requires wisdom, discernment, and a sincere seriousness. He once said, if it would have been a fearful thing for me to have occupied the watchman's place without having received the watchman's commission. If you, if you think going into ministry is the shortcut to easy street, guys, I'm telling you, you got another thing coming. But there is something of great value in the act of public ordination. I remember fondly my own ordination vows at BFC conference in April 2008. I remember looking out at the encouraging and experienced faces of other pastors who were praying for me as I knelt before Christ and felt their approving hands of fellow ministers praying God's blessing over my future ministry. Spurgeon said, men do not read the Bible, but they do read us. He said, do let us give them a good version of the scriptures in our lives. Consecrate yourself. Paul wanted Timothy to remember his oath of obligation. Why? Because it's going to get choppy. It is going to get rough. And when you know you've been called of God, you cannot jump ship. And that brings me to the final point. Cross-training activity number seven. Continue. Continue in the work. Practice these things, ponder these truths, pay attention to your life and to the lives of your listeners. I've combined four imperatives in this last point. The point sweeps over verses 15 and 16, which says this, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Do you want to know what success in pastoral ministry really looks like? It's not name recognition. It's not being platformed or being able to boast of huge crowds or large numbers in your church. That might be what young ministers are tempted to think but it's certainly not what it really is. Pastoral success has nothing to do with the numbers of books that you write or the number of baptisms even that you record or the buildings that you erect. Instead, the secret to ministerial success is simply this, in not giving up. That's it. Continue. Keep doing what you're doing. Chuck Swindoll, who I think knows a thing or two about such things, writes the following. The key to successful ministry in a word is perseverance. 
In fact, perseverance is ministry success. The only way to fail in ministry is to back off and give up. Therefore, it should come as no surprise that perseverance is also the minister's greatest challenge. Discouragement comes when no, uh, from nowhere to knock us flat. Criticism makes us wonder why we should stay at it at all. Laziness promises the work will be easier tomorrow. Greed looks for greener pastures and another occupation. Idealism wearily wrestles with futility. Hope barely staves off fatigue. Determination eventually overcomes doubt. But if the minister isn't seeing results or receiving encouragement from the congregation, then resignation will likely follow. Faithful expositors need few things to keep them going, but encouragement is one of them. And he is absolutely right. A faithful pastor is a precious find. A godly shepherd is one who knows the way, who goes the way, and who shows the way. But let me tell you, even the godliest of pastors are not superhuman. He's just supernaturally sustained by the help of the Holy Spirit and doggedly committed to the work of ministry. A pastor or any committed Christian really doesn't get buff overnight. We grow up to maturity over decades. Don't measure me by my first sermons. Don't measure me by this one. Keep your eye. Keep your prayers. Fast for me. As model Christians, ministers need to crossfit daily. But as I hope you're picking up, this is not just a sermon for Pastor Dan and Pastor Jerry and our brother Brad. It's one for every single one of us. So just very quickly, avoid distraction, concentrate, train yourself, commitment, preach and teach the gospel daily, communicate, silence critics by confronting, devote yourself to the word of God by cultivating the ground of truth, remind yourselves often of your calling, concentrate, consecrate yourself, and persevere by practicing, continue in the work. P7X, who wants to sign up? Well, let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, again, we thank you for just how sweet and how wonderful and how tender you are for, to us.